Hello and welcome to Matt D'Elia is Confused. This is Matt D'Elia and this week's guest is a genuine, actual, real life, real deal hero of mine. His name is Bart Ehrman. He is a scholar. He is technically a New Testament scholar, um, but he specializes and focuses on he focuses on many things, but one of the things he uh, focuses on is the origin of Christianity uh, and the historical Jesus, as in the the person that was Jesus Christ. Um, and as I said, he is he is a hero of mine. He he has single handedly ended lots and lots of confusion for me personally. So I feel indebted to him and I felt so fucking lucky and thrilled to get to have him on the podcast to talk about the things that uh, have confused me, do confuse me, uh, and will always confuse me um, about uh, early Christianity, its spread, who Jesus was, what he was really like, why the fuck this idea spread and not another idea and on and on and on and on and on. My questions are endless. And I got to ask just over the years of being a fan of Bart's and, and, and being aware of his work, I've accumulated so many questions, uh, that I would love to ask him. And I was able to ask him, uh, in this interview. And I'm so fucking happy about it. And yeah, he actually has a new book out, uh, coming out on March 31st. It's called Heaven and Hell, a history of the afterlife. And it's basically about, how our modern ideas of heaven up in the sky, uh, in the clouds, the angels with halos, and this idea and our idea of hell, below ground, fiery furnace with big red monsters with fucking horns in their head, how we came about to have this idea and where those ideas came from and what Jesus and early Christians actually thought about the afterlife. It's a fucking amazing book. Every one of Bart's books is amazing. He's written like 30-something books. Whoever you are, he's going to make you feel unaccomplished. But uh, somehow he found the time to talk to me, and it's awesome. And now you guys get to hear it. And it, it was, no pun intended, but kind of pun intended, it was a fucking biblical conversation. Uh, so now you guys get to hear it. Here is my conversation with Bart Ehrman. Okay. Uh, I'm a professor of uh, religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I've taught here since 1988. I did a Ph.D. in New Testament Studies at Princeton Theological Seminary. In terms of my uh, personal life, I was raised as an evangelical Christian who definitely believed in heaven and hell and ended up, for a variety of reasons, uh, leaving the faith so that I'm no longer a Christian, but I'm really interested still in uh, the historical Jesus and the New Testament and the history of earliest Christianity. And, uh, and so I've written a number of books on, um, on all those topics, um, and uh, some of the books are for scholars, for the uh, six people in the world who care <laughs> about hard-hitting scholarship, and, uh, and I write books for general audiences. And so this book that I've got coming out, uh, Heaven and Hell, 
is for a broad audience, uh, for uh, general readers, not not for scholars. And I I read it. What, when is it? Out? Is it out or is it about to be out? It is coming out on March thirty first. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so uh, we have a little yeah a little lead in time before it happens. Great. Yeah, I mean it's 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 amazing, and I and I and I want to get into all that. I, I do sort of want to stress though for anyone who might not. No, I mean, I don't even know, actually, and this is a question I've been wanting to ask you, your position as uh, sort of an agnostic or, or however you might label yourself, uh, uh, a non-believer uh, in the faith, is, are, are you uniquely positioned in that sense, or, or is this sort of field sort of sporadically littered with like-minded folks such as yourself, or are most people in, this, in, in your field actually Christian? So it completely depends on how you define uh, my field. Um, mm. If you define my field as religious studies, which is technically my department, um, I'd say that departments of religious studies around the country are somewhat notorious for having people teaching religions that they're not they don't participate in. Mm. And so, you know, we have people who are, teach Buddhism who aren't Buddhists, and mm. Islam who aren't Muslim, and Judaism who aren't, you know, so I mean, so, you know, and I teach Christianity as a, as a non-Christian, so there's that. If you mean by my field, New Testament studies, uh, that's a different kettle of fish. Mm. Um, most, most New Testament scholars um, are uh, Christian in some sense. Um, a lot of people who do the kind of scholarship I do, like at a major university, a lot of people like that grew up as church people, uh, committed Christians in one sense or another, went off to seminary or graduate school and realized that the views of the Bible that they had been raised on were problematic when you actually look at the, do serious scholarship on them. And so they ended up changing their views. Uh, about the Bible, you know that there, they a lot of them end up deciding that there are lots of discrepancies in the Bible. It's hard to know what the historical Jesus really taught, and so forth and so on. But they remain Christian in a different sense, not mm-hmm. as a committed evangelical, but as as Christians. And so it's a little bit rare. In fact, it's it's rare to have somebody who is a professed agnostic uh, teaching New Testament studies. Right. I mean, I, I I thought that might be the case, and um, my. I actually there was a there was a there was a great the great courses which you are featured on the historical Jesus was I I watched that I devoured that great course that you gave and I found that so many questions that I had that I would try to find answers to and sort of couldn't were um provided by or at least uh, a light was shined on them by you and i and i and i i i I just i want to thank you for that first of all because i think that maybe because of what you're saying i think that the people who generally want to might want to look at uh the historical jesus might have uh, a skin in the game so to speak as 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 if they're trying to prove that he exists you are trying to get to the absolute truth of what actually happened, and that seems like such a an insurmountable task. But the but your the way you break it down is so um, helpful. And I, honestly, I mean, the title, the the name of the podcast is Matt Delis Confused. You have helped me be so much less confused uh, about okay. things, and and I and I, I don't get to say that to guests very often. So I wanted to get it while I'm talking to you okay. and while we're recording. You know the. The thing is that um, the, 
the, the kind of irony about it all is that the kinds of things that I do in that course or in my books for popular audience, for, for a lot of my books, not for all of them, but for a lot of my books, uh, the kinds of things I lay out are things that scholars widely know, including the, uh, you know, the vast majority of New Testament scholars who are Christian. Um, but uh, for some reason, they're reluctant to tell anybody. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so, and so, like that historical Jesus course that I did, or I have a book on the on called Jesus, the Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium. There's like there are like there by intention there are almost no new ideas in there. Uh, this is just like mm-hmm. common stuff. But every time I give a talk, you know, like even if like if I get invited to a church, which I still, still happens, mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll go to a church and I will, uh, I'll give a talk, you know, and I'm not, I'm not interested in deconverting anybody or changing anybody's mind. I'm just talking about the historical situation. And I'll invariably have somebody come up to me and say, you know, I've been in this church for 30 years and I've never heard any of this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I look across and I see the pastor and realize, yeah, actually this pastor went to the same seminary I did. So right. he heard all this too. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it, I, yeah, I, I so sense it's just, that. Uh, yeah. It's important for scholars, not just biblical scholars, but every scholar, to learn how to communicate to people who are not experts in the field. And scholars just don't do a good job of that usually. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. And you hit on another thing that I I find sort of refreshing again about the this the having a skin in the game or not. You are clearly not trying to uh, deconvert or make anyone believe anything. It really is just history of scholarship, and it's not, it's not pointed. You don't have an agenda, and I think that that makes it that much more sort of, um, I don't know if accessible is the right word, but it makes it more, it, you have no agenda, so no, you, you don't have to worry about, is this person trying to sway me one way or the other? And I think that, that yeah. even that in itself is sort of, uh, uh, unique as far as, as as what I've been able to sort of uh, uh, encounter um, yeah. as someone Well, what I would say is that I don't have a religious agenda. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't care what somebody's religion is so long as, but I do have an agenda to make people more thoughtful about whatever it is they they believe or think or, you know, and to help help people understand what what scholars have learned. You know, there are people who have devoted their entire lives to studying uh, things, and it's it's useful for people who who have a vested interest themselves to know what it is the experts have to say. Right. Uh, and so that's yeah. So uh, I, you know, so I, I have I have an agenda in that sense, right. but I I absolutely don't care if somebody is you know a Appalachian snake handler as long as they're not hurting other people. Right. Um, you know, they pretty much do what they want as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now, I I I want to talk about. I want to spend the bulk of the episode talking about your book, and uh, it dovetails with something that I mean. The the j- basically the premise of of your new book is something that has <laughs> uh, tormented me. This idea of when, as as I got older, let's say, like a teenager, teenage years, and my sort of brain was capable of thinking about these things in a certain way. I came to the conclusion that at some point, somebody or people in different pockets of the world, I don't know, came up with these, all of these ideas. The, if, if one can really just be as um, impartial as, as one can, that's just a, a ground level fact. These, any, any religion, any, any idea about religions, any, any, any uh, ideas about heaven or hell, afterlife at all, Someone came up with them. Maybe not someone like a light bulb went off, but it was it 
humans came right. up with it, you know? Well, um, yeah. no, and I think people are afraid to say that, but it's, it's, it's just empirically true. Right. I mean, when, with respect just to, I mean, you could do this with anything. I mean, with the Pythagorean theorem, you know, there was a time before nobody had the idea of the Pythagorean theorem. And then somebody came up with the Pythagorean theorem. And so, in that sense, it was invented. I mean, it was come up with. Right. But it doesn't make it true or false. It just means that you can figure out when, when humans started thinking that way. And so with heaven and hell, that's, that's what I do. I, there, there were times in history when nobody thought that you died and your soul went to heaven or hell. And then there was a time when virtually everybody thought that. Well, you know, somebody came up with the idea. Right. <laughs> and so I'm interested in knowing how it happened. So let's go all the way back. Let's go in order. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to be sort of, I'm going to try to pretend like I didn't read your book. Uh, uh, okay. but, but, uh, I'll let the fact that I did be the guide. So let's start at like the beginning of that thing you just said, whereas there's a point, there's generally no belief in afterlife. And then it starts to sort of creep into the text, uh, historically, uh, uh, when is that? And, and who is that? Like when, w- what point do you pinpoint that? Um, it's impossible to actually pinpoint in the sense that we know when it actually happened. Right. Well, all we can say is like when it started showing up in our literary mm-hmm. record. So, you know, the only way we know about what people thought in the past is if we have written records of it, or if there's some kind of material remains it's discovered by archaeologists that might give us some hints. Although, usually, you know, when you find archaeological find even like graves and gravestone gravestones and stuff, they're they don't interpret themselves, and so it's a little bit hard to know what they mean. Mm-hmm. There, there could be a lot of theories, but but so we need texts basically. Our oldest texts um, in the Western tradition that deal with heaven and hell are the writings of Homer, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and his view is not that there's a you know that you go to heaven to be rewarded or to hell to be punished is that everybody goes to the same place and it's this awful boring existence for all eternity you don't have a body you can't have any pleasure there's no joy there's nothing to do <laughs> it's really it's, like, yeah. it's completely unpleasant and it's the same for everybody uh and so something happened between that and the idea that you get in, you know, conservative Christian circles today that you better repent or you're going to go to hell. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, but you could go to heaven. So, yeah. So, so the earliest records don't have um, a heaven and hell for people. The, the, you're asking when we first get it. And yeah. it, we, it first starts showing up, so far as we know, in, in the Western tradition. So I'm just, I, I just speak about the Western tradition right. because I, it's what I know about. And it gets really different when you start moving into Buddhism or things in the, East, in the mm-hmm. Eastern world. And it's also different in Egypt. And I, I decided not to deal with Egypt in my book because I decided it actually did not affect uh, Judaism or Christianity, which is what I ended up really mm-hmm. wanting to, to trace. But uh, the first time it shows up in the Western tradition is in uh, Greek writings, um, and most famously in uh, Plato. Uh, so uh, Plato's writing at the uh, beginning of the 4th century BCE, and he definitely believes that the soul exists uh, after the body dies, and he tells several myths uh, about uh, souls being rewarded or punished. And it's not clear whether these are, when he calls the myths, the, word Greek, the Greek word for myth is muthos, it simply means a story. Mm. And it's never quite clear whether 
Plato actually believes these stories or not, but he he tells the stories, and that shows that people then, you know, he he was talking a language that people understood, and so they knew all about rewards and punishments. So right. at least by then, we start getting it. it. It's hard. I mean, being one of the of of what in steeped in Western tradition, Western values, just by way of where I'm from, it's hard to even imagine a point in human history where there was no thought of uh, reward or punishment for this life in the afterlife. It's hard to even think of what human life would have looked like. I mean, as you say, Homer, it's it's this vision of the afterlife as this endless same thing all the time for everyone, whether they were great or they were terrible. And I think it's actually, it's it, the the more I peel that back, the harder it's, it is even to yeah. get a glimpse at what life might even be like in such a place. Yeah. Well, you know, Homer, um, Homer actually has two kind of views about it, depending on which of his books you read, the Iliad or the Odyssey. In the, in the Iliad, uh, the whole point of the Iliad is that it's, it's worth dying for a kind of glory. Right. You, right. You, if you, and you know that's an issue people have today. You know, when when are you when are you for what are you willing to die? Right. You know, and in Homer's day, you know, if you can die on the battlefield in glorious battle, you know that that was great. Mm-hmm. But when you get to the next book he wrote, the Odyssey, it turns out, yeah, it's not so great because <laughs> then you end up in this Hades forever, and like, right. you know, it's better to live as long as you can, and uh, which is more of a philosophy that uh, we get now. But the whole point of the Odyssey, the Odyssey itself, that book, is that the hero. Is doing his best just to stay alive, and he wants to get home to his family because that's what really matters. Right, and you know, so yeah, so uh, I know, but you know, it's hard. It's hard for people today to put their play themselves in the place of people in other cultures that don't have their ideas, yeah. especially about things like justice. Yeah, um, we just assume everybody has pretty much the same kind of sense of right and wrong, and. Um, you know that, and that it must have some kind of effect on the world at large, and so there must be some kind of judgment after death. It must right must be rewarded, and wrong must be punished. But absolutely, that that's that that is not the oldest view at all. It was a later view, right? Yeah, that, it's it's interesting to even think. It, you know, in your book, there's just a brief part where you, where you mention I forget uh, who it is, but one of the one of the Greek uh, philosophers. Uh, talking about uh, one of the things that you, I, I think it's one of the things you might be punished for uh, is 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 uh, not for committing pederasty, but but for not paying for it. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, and it. And it's so hard. And I, you know, I knew that. Like I knew that was true. But just reading uh-huh. it again, it's like it, I had yeah. to like go back and think. Oh, I, Obviously, it's true. It's in this book, and I know that. But I had to go back and 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 just like look it up, and just to—it's th- just impossible to think about. But that just was the way it was, and there's no way to enter that mindset. You know, we grow up no believing what we believe as right and wrong, and what we'll be rewarded for or punished for, whether in this life or another life. And it's just you cannot—it's—it's it's impossible to access that outside of our our own views. You know. Well, one of you know one of the things I talk about in the book are these uh, these very strange pieces of literature that people don't know about that are guided tours of heaven and hell in the ancient world. Uh, these are the sort of the forerunners of Dante, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because they'll uh, they usually describe hell in much more interesting and graphic terms than heaven. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
because when they get to hell, they can describe what the particular tor- tortures are. Right, right, and right. It's more fun. Yeah. So they they detail the sins, right, these different ones. And so you've got some of these in um, Greek sources and in Roman sources and in Jewish sources and in Christian sources. And it's interesting to see what these authors thought were the most heinous sins. And it really is different from one place to another. And there are things that today you would just never, ever think of right. as being a sin worth being punished in hell for. I mean, like in the in both the Jewish and Christian texts, one of the worst things you can do is to loan money out at interest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of people will be punished yeah, well, for that now, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I was. I gave a talk. I gave a talk actually to an audience, kind of a, a kind of a um, uh, what you say, well cultured uh, audience mm-hmm. and kind of highly placed audience mm-hmm. one of uh, six months ago. And I was talking about how in one of these uh, Christian apocalypses, bankers who loan money out to interest are have to spend eternity standing up uh, to their knees in excrement. <laughs> and a guy in the back row said. Yeah, sounds like a day at the office. <laughs> <laughs> this has got a sense of humor about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So okay. So the uh, Plato uh, sort of reframes this this idea, the separation of the soul and the body. And there's this. What what w- does Plato have a specific idea about what does happen uh, in the afterlife? Like, what is his his particular framing? And I'm trying to get at where this goes. Just sort of yeah. uh, the coast. Yeah. Go ahead. So in the myths that he tells, what happens, the, the most famous myth is called the myth of Ur, spelled E-R. Mm-hmm. And it's at the end of his very long dialogue, The Republic. And it's one of the reasons it's really interesting is because it's a near-death experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people today are really into near-death experiences, and yeah. Plato tells one. Uh, this guy, it's a fictional character, Ur, that he makes up. But he, he dies, and he goes to the place of judgment to see what's happening, and um, souls are sent off uh, either to be rewarded with, you know, paradise for a thousand years or to be tortured for a thousand years, depending on whether they were righteous or wicked. Mm-hmm. And after the thousand years, they come back and, uh, and they talk to each other and figure out what happened over these last thousand years, and then they line up to do it again. And so he teaches reincarnation um, that... Um, you you're punished if you're wicked and rewarded if you're righteous, but you get another chance. And some wicked people then choose to be good because they'd rather be right. rewarded. And so, oddly, a lot of the righteous people decide they're going to be uh, tyrants or people, you know, who are <laughs> because they think, well, that might be interesting. And then they forget, oh yeah, that's going to be a thousand years of hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so that's played well It's rewards up, yeah. and punishment and reincarnation. Right. Okay. And so then the 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 shift from there. I mean, it's sort of. I know the, the the Greeks sort of expand on that and have different ideas varying to varying degrees, but but I something I guess I actually didn't know, um, not really. Uh, and reading your book uh, uh, sort of illuminated this for me. Was this I sort of always associated uh, ideas about af- the afterlife in general, and as, particularly as we know them now in the Western world coming out of or rather post jesus and but you talk Uh, about quite a bit there's you spend quite a bit of time which is very very fascinating to me about sort of the lead up to uh the time of jesus but in that time uh, judaic thought sort of 
kind of making the bed for for this to kind of spring out of that moment. Um, and if you could yeah. talk about that a little I, bit, yeah. Yeah, I think two of the surprising things in the book, and they were actually kind of surprising for me years ago when I realized it, mm-hmm. um, were that the Old Testament, so, so obviously Christianity comes out of Judaism, and the Old Testament, unlike Plato, does not have heaven and hell. Right. It doesn't have rewards and punishments after death, uh, except for in one one three-verse passage in the entire Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, people basically die, and that they stop. That's it. They're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so, and they they do have this. Uh, they have this term Sheol in the Old Testament that people know about, but it's, and people tend to think of it as kind of like a Hades, you know, mm-hmm. like you, it's this place where everybody goes and it's boring forever. But actually, I argue in my book that probably this, this term Sheol in the Old Testament, which is mistranslated as hell, they, they really shouldn't translate it as hell, mm-hmm. but it, what it really means is the grave. It's just, you know, it's where your body goes when you, you don't exist anymore. Um, so uh, Jesus though, uh, didn't hold to that view. Jesus held to a view that developed in Judaism after most of the Old Testament was written, mm-hmm. um, a view called, uh, that scholars call apocalyptic Judaism. Uh, apocalyptic Judaism insisted that the apocalypse was coming, and at the apocalypse, God was going to destroy the forces of evil that are making life so miserable here. Uh, you know, the reason there's so much suffering is because there are bad forces in the world that are opposed to God and his people. And But God's going to intervene and destroy those forces and bring in a good kingdom here on earth. And the people who are going to inherit the kingdom are the ones who follow God, including the people who have already died. Because God's going to raise people from the dead who have been righteous, and they will inherit this utopian kingdom forever. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he's talking about this kingdom that's coming to earth that people are going to live in in their bodies. Right. And so that's the other that's the other surprising thing in my book, is I argue not only does the Old Testament not teach heaven and hell in the sense that your soul dies and goes to one or the other, but Jesus didn't teach that. Right. And either did Paul, and either did the Book of Revelation, so that our so you're right in a sense in what you said at the beginning. I and mean, the views of the afterlife that we have today are after Jesus uh, in the Christian tradition, right? Uh, because they're not what he taught, right? Yeah. Uh, what I what I keep coming back to in my mind, because uh, uh, I've been thinking about your book quite a bit, is this is this what you kind of hit on, uh, which is this this shift from old testament and everything that's nothing that's in there really besides the three lines that you're talking about uh uh even broaches the subject of of afterlife it's just not a thing at all but then we come into this apocalypticism and it it it, it clearly uh there's 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 a shift there and um i am really curious in in i and you do talk about this which 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 i find just so important and so worth worth thinking about, which is this idea that social upheaval sort of al- allowed uh, some of this, some of what's in the Old Testament to be looked at through a certain lens that was sort of. 
pulled what was pulled out of it were certain ideas uh, about the afterlife that aren't actually in the book, but they found footing in this sort of social upheaval situation. And and I'm I'm very curious about that because that seems to be a, sort of like a linchpin in the story, which is, you know, there is no afterlife uh, in Judaism, yeah. and then there's this br- broad sort of like a, a budding of 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 a sense of well, actually there is, and it sort of. It's misinterpretation, but also understandable and also just it's a lot of things. And I think that that's a really, really important moment to sort of yeah. look at, you know? Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of a complicated story. And I try, to, I try to make it as simple as I can in the book because it, it can be expressed simply. But, but you're right. You do, you do get the idea of an afterlife emerging out of traditions that did not teach about an afterlife. <laughs> right. And the way, one way that it worked... Um, Again, this this will seem kind of strange to people because they probably haven't thought about it like this. But in the prophets of the Old Testament, a number of the prophets in the Old Te- Testament, well, in fact, all of the prophets, none of them is predicting what's going to happen in our future. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the most important thing in that reading the prophets in the Old Testament. They they are not predicting distant future. They're they're talking about what's happening in their own day, and they're telling people what the people need to do because. Uh, if they don't, God's going to wipe them out. <laughs> mm, right. So you get prophets like Ezekiel, uh, who uh, Ezekiel was living in, in the sixth century BCE, and the nation of Israel was being Judah was being threatened by the Babylonians before, and his early prophecies are about that. Well, uh, he's saying you know, you're going to be wiped out if you don't turn your life around, mm. and so the people of Judah don't, and they get destroyed by the Babylonians. Then he's all upset because they got they got destroyed. And God reveals to Ezekiel that he's going to bring the nation back to life. So it's been destroyed, um, and so the nation's died. I mean, there's no king, there's no government, there's no... The the aristocrats have been all taken off to Babylon, and, like, there's nothing there. Just people are kind of existing by farming uh, hand-to-mouth existence. Mm-hmm. But Ezekiel predicts the nation's going to come back to life, and he has this famous passage in Ezekiel chapter 37... It, it, where he likens it to a valley that's filled with dry bones. Mm-hmm. Like these human bones are in this desert area, in this valley, and God makes them come back to life. Flesh comes back on these bones, and they, the prophet breathes his breath into them, and they become humans again. And so this, this is, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel says, this is about the nation of Israel coming back to the land. Mm-hmm. Um, but later people took it to mean... Uh, no, it's not talking about the restoration of the nation. It's talking about individuals rising from the dead. Right. And so they imported an idea into a text that didn't have it originally, um, based on you know what what they had come to think about the afterlife. Yeah, it, it, that sort of speaks to um, this idea that I always kind of come back to about uh, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, any sort of uh, foundational religious text really is that generally uh, their parables or, or their vague or their sort of uh, mythic feeling, uh, but or, or it, it's easy to infuse your own current thinking into whatever's in the ancient book. I mean that passage, as you 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 know, you write it out in the in the book, and you can really look at it. And, and it, I was I was reading, and I was thinking uh, you could extrapolate many things from this and depending upon where you are socially or where you are historically or where you are even geographically your interpretation of it 
not only can be different than someone else's, but it, it almost is guaranteed to be different from someone else's. And and it's yeah. it's interesting now. I mean, you even see that now. I mean, people are trying to sort of uh, tell us, I mean, just something modern like gay marriage. It's it's someone will say, no, 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 it, it's God says it's not right because of this passage. And someone else will say God says it is right because of this passage. And it's it's just you you can make of it what you will. And it's almost more of a mirror of the moment you're living in than it is yeah. really about the actual time it was written at all, you know? Well, the hardest thing um, of teaching students uh, a historical approach to the Bible is to get them to try to understand how somebody in the ancient world would have thought about texts like this. Right. Um, because they just assume that everybody at all time, all times has the same point of view, right. and that, um, that what's natural to them would be natural to somebody living 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so they, it's not that they're trying to misinterpret the text, it's just they can't help but read it in light of what they already know. Right. And so what you have to teach them is to try, you, you've got to figure out how people thought in the ancient world and how, you know, how this particular context would have understood this kind of, uh, this kind of verse or this kind of passage. Right. I mean, just kind of an obvious example. And so I'm, I'm not going to take, I'm not taking a stand here on the ethical issue, mm-hmm. but the, the issue of abortion, mm-hmm. um, it is amazing how, um, one group argues that the Bible flat out condemns abortion, and they quote verses for it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the reality is, abortion is never mentioned in the Bible. Period. Yeah. And I know, I know the verses they refer to. I mean, I know, I know the debates, mm-hmm. but the verses they're referring, referring to have nothing to do with abortion, um, and uh, they actually have nothing to do with when life starts. And, uh, but you read it through your, your eyes and it just kind of makes sense, right. you know, it's just like, it just, and so of course it makes sense by the sense you've already got in your head, right, right. but you have to put yourself in, in the context of the original readers to make sense of what the author was trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that is essential to sort of understanding anything like that. But, you know, people, I think, as you're saying, it's so natural to infuse it with things you already think. And you're not, it's not conscious. These people don't read it and think, I'm going to put my ideas into this. I'm going to, I'm going to have it confirm what I already think. It's just, that's what brains do, basically. It's not really up to them necessarily. And it takes sort of a, 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 an academic approach to say, okay, I'm going to step out of this and do everything I can to be objective and really just look at it for, for what it really is. Um, well, that's right. And it's important to think that way, not just about religion. I mean, politics are exactly the same thing, Yeah, you know, and that you people need to understand that political ideology sometimes just makes sense because you were raised that way. And that's just how you think, but you know, you have to take a a step back sometimes and think about, you know, what, what does this really mean and what's the basis for it? And is it right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, there's something you talk about in the in the in the book as well, which is I hadn't really thought about, and 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 it sort of wiggled stuff loose that that I found really interesting. This idea of going from sort of polytheism to monotheism, and this this running into this problem, uh, and this is before uh, Jesus, is is this idea that well, if there's only one God then how could there be suffering? If he's all-knowing and all-loving to those who worship him properly, then why do bad things happen to one or or a whole sort of kingdom of people who worship 
uh, properly, and 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 that sort of and and sort of out of that coming this 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 counter of of this idea of Satan that seems almost an essential step in between you know uh, one view of the afterlife to the sort of post Jesus view of it. Uh, it. It seems essential to sort of this creation of of Satan as a foil really to the one God. Otherwise, it really can't make sense. Well, how could there be suffering if he's just up there deciding that there's suffering that doesn't sound like the God we sort of worship. So that, that seems like a key part of the story. It is. And, you know, and again, this, this gets back to the thing you were just saying about how people like see things through their own, Mm -hmm. through their own eyes. I mean, so many people don't understand why it's a problem, why there would be suffering if there's only one God, you know, because they have easy solutions to it. You know, it's because of sin, you know, sin came into the world, that's why it's humans' fault, it's not. Or it's because God gave us free will, and so we're able to hurt one another. Or it's because, you know, there's a devil who uh, creates the problem. Or it's because, you know, they have these easy, and so they don't see that it's a problem. Right. But the reason it's a problem is that if you, almost, so virtually everybody in the ancient world was a polytheist, mm-hmm. um, knowing that there were many gods. If you've got many gods, you have no trouble explaining why there's evil. Right. Some of these gods are bad people. <laughs> right. Right. And they're out to hurt you. So of course there's of course there's suffering because they're bad de- deities. Right. But if you now if you get rid of all the deities and have just one, and that one is perfectly good, uh, then you've got to come up with some explanation. <laughs> and of course, all these other explanations are explanations, precisely because you need an explanation. Right. If you're a polytheist, you don't need an explanation. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's just there. It's like you know, you got good people and evil people. You got good gods and evil gods. Yeah. And so, but then that does lead to the question that that's that does lead directly to this question of afterlife. I mean, if there is justice in the world, how is it that can, some people can be really good people who have the most miserable time of it, mm-hmm. and there are other people who are just rotten schmucks, mm-hmm. and they're doing great. They're doing great. <laughs> right. So and, yeah. There's got to be some explanation for that, and there's got to be, if there's ultimately justice, and it, justice doesn't happen in this, in this life, it must happen in the next life. Right. And so that's the logic, then, that leads to uh, to ideas of the afterlife. Yeah, so, okay, so now we're uh, leading up to the, the time of, of, of Jesus, and I think, I think the, a major misconception um, is that Jesus, and you hit on this a little bit earlier, but I want to expand on it a bit, that Jesus was not preaching or teaching our current or even anything close to our, our current present view of the afterlife, this, this very specific idea of heaven above, hell below, if you, you know, all these things. And I think that that that's that I think surprises I, I don't think people know that and I think even people who are sort of consider themselves Christians, at least the ones that consider themselves loosely, don't know that either. And and so what is what was he sort of preaching? And 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 I, I guess let's let's define that and then moving forward from that how it started to change again. Well I think this will be the most controversial part of the book. Mm-hmm. And it, it won't be controversial because it's controversial among scholars who study this kind of thing, but it's not the kind of thing anybody thinks of. Right. Because you're right, people just assume that Jesus taught that you die and your soul goes to heaven or hell. Right. And it's because they re- when they read the Bible, when they see that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God or entering into the kingdom of heaven, 
they just naturally think that means that your soul dies and goes to heaven or right. goes to live with God, and that's, that's how they think. But they don't think about what the kingdom of God would mean for a first-century Jew living in Palestine mm-hmm. or in, in ancient Israel. Um, for someone like that, the kingdom of God was not a, uh, a place that souls go to after they die. It was an actual kingdom. Right. That's why they call it a kingdom. Uh, it's going to be... What happens is... God creates this world, and it gets all messed up, and um, there are these forces of evil, but God's going to destroy these forces of evil so that the world will return to the paradise that he originally designed. Mm. He created this world uh, as a paradise for humans, and they botched it, and um, and now, you know, they're paying the price, but it's going to return to, it's going to, return to the way God originally planned it, and people are going to live in it. God created people in bodies, and so they're going to live in, there in bodies. So in traditional Jewish thinking, there's not a separation between body and soul the way there is in uh, Greek thinking, mm. uh, as, as in Plato. Uh, and the way people think of it today is in these Greek terms, that you've got your body, you get your soul that's in your body. When your body dies, your soul leaves and goes somewhere else. That's not what ancient uh, Hebrews and then Jews thought. Mm-hmm. Um, in the ancient Jewish conception, what we would what we would call the soul, um, they they thought of as more like something like what we would call the breath. Mm-hmm. And so we we think today that you know you when you're alive you're breathing, and when you stop breathing you die. Mm-hmm. But we don't think that the breath goes anywhere. Mm-hmm. The breath just stops. Yeah. And that's what they thought about the soul. It doesn't go anywhere. It can't exist apart from the body. So the soul is the thing that makes the body alive, just as your breath is what makes the body alive, but it doesn't exist apart from the body. So ancient Jews thought that when you died, that was it. You're not alive anymore. The apocalyptic Jews started to think that at the end of time, God was going to breathe life back into the bodies of the righteous. And so... Um, they will be brought back as physical beings, and they'll live here on Earth in this utopian existence that was the world was created for. And Jesus very much believes that, that the kingdom of God is the utopian existence that's going to come to resurrected bodies at the end of time, not that your soul will go to heaven. Right. And, 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 and he, just to sort of paint a picture, I guess, as broadly as we can, he was... One, as you say, these apocalypticists, he was one of them at this time when he, there were mi- sort of many different. There was there was social strife, I guess. Let's say, and there were a lot of. I think he was one of this this this. He was just one of these people who was preaching something about what was going to happen. My my sense is just from le- not necessarily from this new book, but from your teachings in general. There were. He was uh, he was he was unique in who he was and everything the historical figure, but the apocalyptics uh, there was sort of this was a I don't want to call it a movement but this apocalypticist thing was he wasn't the only one out there talking no. about these kinds of things. No, not at all. And one one of the arguments I've frequently made over the years is that this apocalyptic way of looking at the world was was very, very common, and almost all of the sources that we have from the time, in one way or another, have been influenced by this apocalyptic way of thinking. Um, and so, like, an analogy to it would be, um, 
to move it from religion to economics, it'd be like capitalism in America. Mm. Just about everybody's a capitalist, you know, believing in free enterprise and such. Yeah. There are people who don't, mm-hmm. um, and some are outspokenly against it, but most people just kind of grew up assuming that free enterprise is the best, free, free enterprise capitalism is the way to go. Right. And apocalypticism was kind of like that in the religious world of Judaism. Mm. It was very common. It could be manifested in different ways, and different capitalists could be, you know, better or worse. It could be, you know, more famous or not. And different apocalypticists could be better or worse or more famous and have different views and things. And so the idea that, there, that eternal life is going to be lived in the body after the resurrection was appears to be the dominant view in Jesus' day, and so it's not surprising that he had a similar view. Right, and so I'm assuming that uh, putting oneself there, we, we, if we're listening to Jesus talk and the message that is being spread, we understand it in our time to be, you know, more immediate than than I think we think of it now. It was, as you say, it was going to be a kingdom and we better get our shit in order. Uh, otherwise, you know, uh, we won't be able to be there, right? The, this kingdom on yeah, earth. That would, yeah, that would be a fair paraphrase of Jesus. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Keep your good. shit together. Yeah. Good, good, good. Okay. So, so how, how do we get from that uh, even to where... F- but what is the what is the sort of I, I'm picturing it as like this this wide sort of uh, I'm picturing it sort of funneling out towards where we are now, which is that there's yeah. this broader yeah. sense, and then it gets more and more refined to the way we think of it now. What is like the step? What is what is our first step after Jesus towards towards where we're thinking now? How we think of it now? Yeah. So what ends up happening? What one element of this apocalyptic thought that we haven't mentioned yet is key to mm-hmm. the development. The this other aspect is that these apocalypticists were convinced that it was going to happen soon. Mm. Um, that that you know the world had gotten just as awful as it could get, and God was going to intervene very soon to destroy the forces of evil and bring in this paradise. Um, and the reason they emphasize it's going to be soon is because they're trying to encourage people to hold on. Um, don't give up the faith. Uh, don't cave in. Uh, don't stop being good. If you, if you can just hold on for a little while longer, it's going to be okay. God's going to intervene, and paradise is coming. So the emphasis on it being soon ends up mattering for this discussion because um, this idea that the resurrection of the dead is going to happen sometime, you know, next month, mm-hmm. um, when it doesn't come next month, uh, or next year, or next decade, or next century, um, people start changing how they think about it. You know, well, right. the reason God was going to do that, raise the dead, is is to bring justice. And we thought it was going to happen soon, but you know, it didn't happen the way we thought. But surely it is happening soon. And they started thinking, you know what? It happens when we die. Mm. That's when the kingdom comes. Because uh, it, it does come soon. It comes at our death. And so what happens is the idea shifts from being a contrast between this evil world we live in now and the good paradise that's coming, which is a, it's a dualistic way of looking at things, mm-hmm. right? You've got, you've got two things. You've got evil now, good then. Uh, and it's done in a kind of a um, timeline. Um, and the timeline ends up becoming not about time but about space, it's still good and evil, mm-hmm. uh, but now it's, 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 instead of now and then, it's up and down. Right. The evil is down here, and the good is up there. 
And so the kingdom of God now no longer is what's going to happen here in a certain time. It's what's going to happen above, and so your soul dies and it goes above. It goes up to heaven. And so you get above and below heaven and hell instead of, you know, the uh, evil age now and the good age to come. And and how does, because as, we, as we've been saying, it isn't at all in any way that's not what Jesus is saying. So I don't want to say who is responsible for that, but but moving out yeah. of Jesus, forward from yeah. Jesus, timeline wise, what how, who who's doing that? How is that happening? Like wh- when is that sort of funneling starting yeah. to go down? Yeah. Well, we don't. You know, we can't say for sure. What right. we do know is that um, if Jesus Jesus is usually thought to have died around the year thirty, mm-hmm. the Common Era, our first Christian author is the Apostle Paul who's starting to write about 20 years later, so that Paul's writing before the Gospels, and he's our first Christian author, and his his writings are our very first surviving Christian writings of any kind. Mm-hmm. In his earliest writings, like the book of First Thessalonians and the book of First Corinthians, he agrees with Jesus that the kingdom of God is going to come to earth, and people are going to be raised from the dead at the end of time. I mean, he where he differs from Jesus is he thinks that Jesus himself is going to come back from heaven to do it. Uh. Um, and so he's expecting Jesus to return soon. And he teaches people this. And so and he lays all of this out in, in some of his letters. Later on, his last letters, all of a sudden he's realizing, I might die first. Right. And he thinks, if I die first, I mean, what does that mean? I mean how long do I have to wait before I... I'm back in Christ's presence. Mm-hmm. And Paul starts developing the idea that when you die, you actually enter directly into the presence of Christ until the resurrection. Um, and Paul thought, you know, it might be, you know, it might be a few more years. Right. Um, but then what happens is, uh, you know, Paul dies and, and time goes on. And so in the later Gospels, Jesus doesn't preach as much about the coming kingdom with the resurrection he starts talking about how when people die, they already experience uh, uh, pain or, or bliss. Uh, and so these are not words that Jesus himself actually taught. They're the ways Christians have modified his words in light of what's developed, which is the kingdom didn't come. Right. And so they start thinking about heaven and hell. So even in, like, the Gospel of Luke... Uh, when Jesus is being crucified and this criminal is beside him and the criminal asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Mm. Um, so that's in Luke, which is you know written 60 years after Jesus. Right. Uh, and it's not what Jesus would have said, but it's the way now Christians are interpreting Jesus that it starts, that something happens at death. Right. Okay. So, it's interesting to think about again to try to put oneself there and 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 it, it, you know I think it's it, to an atheist let's say it might be easy to look back and say well they're just they're just lying or or trying to control or whatever it is you know but it 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 yeah. when you really put yourself there it seems so much less nefarious than that it yeah. really just seems like they're yeah. trying to make sense of a thing they know it's all true but they're just trying to make sense of how it's possibly happening the way it is happening and they're looking to the text or the stories that they're familiar with to sort of glean that stuff you know yeah i i think that's absolutely right and i think it's a really important point that people miss because yeah. 
a lot of I know a lot of agnostics and atheists who um, just are convinced that somebody back there is just lying, yeah. and that the, you know they're lying through their teeth because it's going to make them powerful or it's going to make them influential. It's, you know they're going to start the religion now, and I just I don't see it that way at all. I really think that there are people just trying to figure it out, and. Um, you know, I don't agree with them. I think that they, you know, I, I don't agree with them. But it doesn't mean they're lying just because I disagree with them. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, it's, 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 I think it's an easier, I don't want to, I mean, maybe it is lazy, but, but, but it's definitely easier to just say, oh, they're lying when you, when there's yeah. someone that you disagree with, because yeah. you, in your mind, can't possibly see how that's true. But I think generally, that's just not I don't think that's the the default of these things. I'm sure people, obviously, people lie. But when I, yeah. when you look at these big, big, big historical movements, I mean, there's there's nothing bigger, arguably, than this historical movement, Christianity in general. And it doesn't seem like there could ever be even. Certainly, there can't be one person who's sitting there. You know what? I'm going to lie. But even like a, a a group of people were going to lie to control people. It's just it it all yeah. unravels much slower and sl- really sloppier than that. You know. It is. And, you know, in the modern context, you know, you have all these people who have near-death experiences, and you get a similar discourse about that, where some people just believe they really went on these journeys to the afterlife, they come back and telling, and other people don't think it's believed it's possible, and some of the people who think it's not possible say, well, they're just lying about it. They want to publish a book, and, you know, they can make some money off of it, and so they're just lying. And I think sometimes they are lying. They, they right. probably are sometimes. Sure. But a lot of times, these people have a near-death experience. Right. I mean, it happens. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there are physiological reasons for it, but and it doesn't mean they're lying. It might mean that they, you know, got something wrong. Not the same thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to think of it uh, this way because it makes me it makes me want to just go back directly to the source, which obviously in in, in the ultimate source is Jesus. And it makes me I mean, obviously, there's absolutely no way to know. But I, I, I find myself thinking about what he where he in his mind do you know like it, it's yeah. it, uh, the ultimate thing that one could never do putting oneself in the mind of Jesus Christ but it does it does if you're going to go all the way back and think well no one's lying you know uh yeah. he's the original source you could say and yeah. and it, it it it's fascinating to wonder really i mean i know again he was one of 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 many apocalypticists of the, at the time but even all of them like to 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 put myself in that headspace it's it's interesting to wonder really what what is going on there and 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 it, you know there's this spectrum of madman or prophet you know and and there's somewhere in between that i obviously think he falls which is i believe he believed everything he said and everything he did yeah. it's just a matter of whether <laughs> whether it's real or not whether it's true or not and whether how right he really was or not you know yeah yeah, yeah, no, I think so too. And I think that, um, I, I guess I think there are two issues. One is, um, you know, how do we know what he really said? Right. Uh, which is what scholars do. And then, uh, but then the question, you know, was he, was he sincere about it? Yeah, I, I agree with you. Of course he was sincere about it. Right. And his, I think his disciples were sincere about it. Yeah. They, didn't, they weren't like making up that they saw him raised from the dead. They really thought they, they, they thought they, they thought so. Yeah, right, <laughs> so, right, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's 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 part of that that um i i guess so, so i guess to just go back uh to 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 paul uh moving out of paul christianity is let's say 
when Paul is writing and by the time he dies, really, or when Paul, the time of Jesus to the time Paul dies, the the spread is it's it's really on it's really going it's 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 moving now outside of this sort of cultish thing that it was you could argue into what it the ball's rolling the snowball's getting bigger you know and so yeah. i guess as we're moving forward as you see it when does when does where we are now start to really crystallize as uh as because the way we think of it now is rather rather specific, and I think that yeah. it was probably a slow process. It wasn't just this this one moment where it was like, well, it's it's heaven and hell. And there's so many things that we now think. Is there a time that you sort of point to or look at as the as this this is when it started to really solidify as what it is? Yeah, now? I mean, it is a progress, and part of the progress is involved with Paul because he's mainly converting uh, Gentiles, non-Jews, right. And non-Jews don't have an idea of the resurrection of the body. They have the idea of the immortality of the soul. And so these people come into the religion thinking that the soul lives forever. Mm. And um, so they naturally uh, will Ah. be more inclined toward a view like Plato, that the soul lives on. And I I think the time that you can isolate where it really becomes a big deal for Christians is when they start suffering persecutions. Um, Some of our earliest texts of Christian martyrs uh, are martyrs trying to explain to themselves why they have to be tortured to death. And they'll often talk to the people who are torturing them or about to torture them and say, well, you know, you might burn me for an hour, but you're going to burn forever. Right. Um, and so the idea is, again, it's, it's trying to explain how it's fair and in terms of the afterlife. But now these people are thinking that you're going to burn forever means that, you know, your soul lives forever, and it's going to be punished. Um, and so it's, it's happening already in the early 2nd century, I think, when you start uh, getting this, this strong emphasis on uh, eternal reward or eternal punishment. It's really interesting to think of it that way as sort of, you know, getting back to this Plato idea, the separation, and, and as uh, Paul is spreading the word, it's spreading uh, as it is, it's Gentiles are converted, but these Gentiles are steeped in a different way of thinking. And yeah. and they think the way that people have thought for, for sort of longer in this sort of uh, platonic way, which is that there is yeah. there's there is a soul, and, and their framework for thinking about the world sort of naturally pulls out this idea of, well, there is there just is an afterlife, really, almost, you know? And so to put that into the teachings, that the things that you're being taught – Again, it gets it gets down to you have to think about where they were at the time, socially, culturally, religious, religion wise. It's 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 very very uh, interesting to think about it, sort of looping all the way back around from that Platonic thought to the masses that Paul was spreading the word to. It really starts to the picture becomes not necessarily clear, but it is a picture that there it is becomes a, a bit linear, and you can see it. You know, yeah. Well, that's right, and and it's you know as what we've been saying all along. When you, you bring something with you when you uh, enter into a new religion, um, and or when you grow up with a religion, and so it's just like people today uh, to revert to capitalism. You know, they just assume that the Bible supports their capitalist views right. because it just makes that's how they read the Bible. And there wasn't such a thing as capitalism back then, right. and so you have to readjust how you think. Uh, it's true with the afterlife as well. 
if you and I know we're coming up on an hour here, and and uh, I, I, I I'm curious if if you do you if there's a if there is a misconception or or, or let's say uh, that people have about uh, this matter specifically, what if there's one big main main misconception uh, or 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 most problematic misconception? What what would you say? What would you point to? Well, you know, at the, at the end of the day, one of the reasons I wrote the book, and the thing I end the book with, is that uh, there are a lot of people, at least in my part of the world, in the American South, there are a lot of people who are really afraid that they're going to go to hell and be tortured forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to show why that's not at all what the Bible teaches, it's not what Jesus taught, it's not what the Old Testament taught. Um, and I, I like to think of the whole thing, so I think that's the big misconception. Right. And and what I what I... I end with is actually Socrates. Um, Socrates had a great idea. Socrates said, look, death is one of two things. Either you die and you live on, which means you, you get to associate pe- with people who died before you, and you get to meet uh, old friends, and you get to have dialogue partners, and that's good. Or it's like a really deep sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're unconscious. And who doesn't like a good sleep? You right. know, you have a deep sleep, and you think that's great. And so, so uh, so it's good either way. And uh, so my view is that, um, you know, we don't know what happens. I mean, none of us knows. But my view is that we, we either, either we have something to hope for, um, there's either going to be something good, uh, or there's going to be complete unconsciousness where you're not even going to think about it or worry about it. So uh, there might be something to hope for, but there's absolutely nothing to fear. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, I've, I think it's something that um, you compare to all right, uh, rest in peace. Uh, this the the abbreviation that you point out at the at one point in the book. It, uh, I I I was not. I was. I am not. I care not. That yeah. is sort of. Yeah. It sums it up perfectly to me, really, and and I find that to be very sort of profound. Um, well, it was it was on a lot of tombstones in the Roman world. <laughs> That's how they thought. They just thought, okay, I'm dead, and they're like, you know, I don't care, I don't exist. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a terrifying thought. It's just you know, you're alive for a while. You you weren't terrified before you existed. You won't be terrified after you exist. Right? You yeah. Exist. <laughs> it's yeah, again. It comes back to this idea of uh, I think being steeped in Western tradition. Uh, we think of it as. Um, because as you point out, people who aren't religious still, or don't call themselves Christians even, they still believe in heaven and hell. So even though they, they aren't practicing Christians, they still believe that they have to be, uh, they have to concern themselves with what happens after they die. And this, yeah, this no, it's, it's, a it's, lot of people, I know. <laughs> it's so, it's interesting to think that that, that is not the necessary lens through which we have to look at it. We really can, uh, it, it before people thought this way, there was a more peaceful uh, way to think of it, and and I think it's very very helpful sometimes to have a very long sense of history, a long view of history, because it wasn't always this way, and and it sort of opens up your mind to thinking in other ways when you can be objective and step out and say, well, is that just me and a and a, and a mind thinking now, or is this some universal truth, or? Was it different back then in different periods and different times for for different people? You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, Bart, thank you so much. Um, I, yeah. I, I, your book uh, is amazing. Heaven, hell. Anyone who's listening now, buy it uh, and then read read his other thousand books because they're all good and. Uh, 
Bart, thank you. I really appreciate it, man. Can, can I just say also, if people are interested in this kind of thing, the things I've been talking about, I have a blog that they can uh, certainly look up. Just look up the Bart Ehrman blog. And I, I talk about this kind of stuff all the time, five times a week <laughs> on, on my blog. Yes. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, it's an amazing blog, amazing books. Thank you so much for what you do. Um, I will be reading in the future. So thanks again. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks.